Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. Good morning, good morning. It is so good to be here this morning. This is the first time that I have preached with you guys and I could actually see your faces. And so sometimes when we're preaching, we don't know what you look like on the day. You could be balling up your lip. We have no idea. And so this is a truly, truly a blessing for me. I get to see your beautiful faces. I hope you are doing well this morning. Uh, This morning, I would just like to say glory to our triune God. Glory to him in his church forever. This morning, we will be going through the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is a prophet who writes a book, and this book sort of matches the Bible. There's 66 books in the Bible, and there are 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is probably the the most theological book of all the books in the Bible. He touches on so many different theological themes, as we will see today. But as we discover what is going on, particularly in Isaiah 6, I want you to take a note of three specific things. Three things that we could draw out of this passage today. The first one is that we should know God and know ourselves. The second is we should grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And lastly, we are to go and make Jesus and his love known to the world. Before we begin, let's start off with a word of prayer. Father... God, we thank you so much for allowing us to be here today. We thank you for your grace, which allows us to hear once again your word. Lord, right now I pray that you are with me. Just as much as you was with me in my time of study, will you be with me now in this time? Decrease me and increase yourself. Lord, I ask that you and you alone be glorified. Although I am unworthy of your proclaiming of your word, Lord, I ask that right now you purify my heart, that you alone be heard, you alone be glorified. In your son Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, as you heard earlier, I will be having my fourth child. I know some of you probably, oh yeah, fourth child. I know some of you probably are saying, well, man, uh, one wasn't enough. I know today having four children is sort of, I mean, that's a, that's a big number. I know my grandmother and, and folks of, of her generation would sort of have 10 and 12. I couldn't imagine. Uh, but every time, without failing, my wife and I, we sort of, have two emotions that accompany this whole having a baby experience. The first emotion is excitement and joy. What? We having a baby? Well, all right. And then you get to see this baby sort of growing in the belly. And you're asking yourself, my goodness, where does this child come from? How did it get there? Isn't that a crazy question? How did it get there? 
But you're just mesmer- you're, you're just your mind is blown that life is moving around in the womb. Then on that day where you go down to the hospital and the baby is born and the baby slides down out of your wife like a printer, a piece of paper falling out of a printer, and the baby is just wiggling around, wiggling around, and then finally he stops and connects face to face with you. You tell yourself, man, I'm going to love this child for the rest of my life. And you look between his eyes and you can sort of see his soul. And in that moment, you totally forget about how hard pregnancy was. You totally forget that, man, I haven't gotten any sleep in about two days. And you're just overflowing with joy. But there's another emotion that sort of accompanies having a child, and that is I don't know about you, but my children like to eat, and I am afraid that one day we're going to run out of food. And so there's this fear that sort of accompanies this whole thing with bringing a child into the world. But even more than running out of food, there's sort of a fear and anxiety when it comes to raising a child in such a wicked world. Amen? Well, you sort of look around and you say, man... How am I going to keep my child from all of this evil? And one idea comes to mind, well, maybe I could shelter my child. But you know, that's not good. How am I going to do this? There's so much wickedness in the world. Children learn about pornography at a very young age. How am I going to keep my child from this stuff? And I know some of the scholars in the room might say, hey, look, man, you just train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he gets older, he won't depart from it. And that's true. Generally speaking, that is true. That's what the Bible teaches. That is the rule. But sort of the exception is that we have sin. And sin lures us away from God. And even God, who was the perfect parent, The perfect father has experienced the pains of his child, his children going in the wrong direction. As parents and as a father, my heart drops every time I think that, man, maybe one of these days my daughter or my son will fall in love with a person who will bring destruction to their life. And it just doesn't feel good. And so there's fear. God, as the perfect father, his children had turned his back on him. The book of Isaiah sort of opens up immediately. We sort of arrive on the shores of a conflict between God and his children. Chapter 1, verse 2 through 5 says... Listen, heavens, and pay attention, earth. For the Lord has spoken, I have raised children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. He goes on to say, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's feeding trough. But Israel does not know me. 
My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on him. Why do you want more beatings? Why do you keep on rebelling? Here it is. The whole head is hurt and the whole heart is sick. Sin lured the children of God away from God. Even worse. This is not just sort of the prodigal son getting the inheritance of his father and turning his back and sort of going out and squandering all of his wealth and just throwing his money away and realizing, hey, I could go back to my father. But this is even worse. The children of God had become the enemies of God. In Isaiah chapter 1, 24 through 28, we read the Lord saying, or Isaiah saying, Therefore the Lord of armies, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will get even with my foes. I will take revenge against my enemies. But who is the enemies? I will turn my hand against you and will burn away your dross completely. Speaking to his children. I will remove your impurities. Now what is going on here? He continues to say, I will restore your judges to what they were at first. And your advisors to what they were at the start. Afterward, you will be called the righteous city, a faithful town. Zion will be redeemed by justice, those who repent by righteousness. At the same time, both rebels and sinners will be broken, and those who abandon the Lord will perish. There's an interesting concept happening here that Isaiah sort of braids all throughout of his book. There is an interesting concept, and it is called judgment and hope. Judgment and hope. Right now, currently, we live in what they call the day of grace. Mercy is God withholding punishment that we deserve. And grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. We get food and resources. We're able to take care of our families. He did not see our sin and totally destroy us. We live right now in the day of grace. But here, in the day of grace, instead of humanity repenting and running back to God, they have chosen to rebel. Wickedness has gone wild in the day of grace. But the scriptures tells us of the day of the Lord where God, who sees all of the wickedness, everything we see when we watch the news and we say, my goodness, you're just going to roll up on a crowd of people and shoot? And when the day of the Lord comes, God will correct all of the wickedness in the world. He will wipe clean every inch of evil. 
and God's righteous anger, he will restore the earth. But just like in Isaiah's day, God promised a day of holiness and blessing, hope. There is a day that is coming where this earth, the one that is filled with all of the crime and all of the wickedness and all of the evil, this earth will be restored and be a place of blessing, a place of goodness. For us on that day of the Lord, those who trust in Jesus, his compassion will carry us into his arms forever. That is the hope that we have in Christ. But how, does we, how do we get from where we are now, which is a sort of evil, scary world, wicked world, into a world of blessing and peace? How in the world does that even happen? We'll discover that here in chapter 6. First answer to that is Jesus is how that happens. Jesus and the work that he did on the cross. The second way is the gospel, the good news, that his work on the cross brings salvation to people. We will be saved from his wrath. On the day of the Lord, the world would see a terror that it has never seen before. Jesus will come back and he will wipe this place completely clean. But those who trust in him, those who love him, those who do not reject the son, Jesus Christ, they will be captured into his love forever. So the answer to how we go from where we are now to a place of paradise is Jesus, his work on the cross, the gospel, the good news of our salvation, and you. You. You are the answer. If you are a believer, Jesus has already done a work in your life. Jesus has already transformed you. He has already brought you from darkness into his marvelous light. Some of you have testimonies that will blow a person's mind to think that, my goodness, you were in that and God has brought you out. God uses the testimony of his children to save the world and to transform this place into a place of blessing. God's spirit in you is the hope of the universe. I want you to feel the weight of that this morning. His spirit in you is the hope of the universe. Let's take a look now at chapter 6. Here we see God cleansing Isaiah, then calling the prophet to do something about the evil and the wickedness of his day. In other words, God wants him to lead his people out of rebellion and into holiness. Let's take a look at Isaiah's encounter with the Lord, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Ozai died, 
I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. And the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Seraphim are angels. And one called to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices. And the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Isaiah said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among people with unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. If you are going to be a part of the mission that God is already on, of transforming our world, we must know God and know ourselves. We will first take a look at knowing God. Isaiah is in the throne room of God, and he sees God there. The presence of God totally impacted Isaiah in a way that is sort of unique. God encountered Isaiah's full body. All of his senses were encountered by the presence of God. The scriptures say that he felt God's glory surrounding the entire room. I could picture the glory of God wrapping around Isaiah and he felt God there. What about his sight? Isaiah said, I saw angels. Some say, hey, maybe it's probably two. Others say it's thousands of angels surrounding God. Isaiah saw Jesus sitting on his throne. And these angels couldn't even see. They couldn't even look at his glory. Because God's purity is even more holy than theirs. So as they're flying. They're covering their eyes. What about what he heard? Isaiah said he heard the rumbling sounds of the voices of the angels cry, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. And the doorposts begin to shake in the presence of the Lord. What about what he smelled? It says that smoke filled the whole temple. Now, in those days, people would use incense, and they would burn incense, and smoke would sort of go up as the prayers of the saints go into the air. There was worship happening in God's throne room, and Isaiah smelt the smells of myrrh and the smells of frankincense as God is being worshipped. All of Isaiah's senses were consumed by the holiness of God. No matter what his life looked like before, 
becoming in the presence of God? In that moment, Isaiah knew Jesus and he knew he was holy. Now, today's theology sort of tells us that it's all about knowing about God. Theology is the study of God, knowing about God. But true theology is knowing God himself. Even here in our world, we know that it's not about what we know, but who we know. Amen? Uh, I know an older pastor, he always say, hey, I'm preaching better than y'all responding this morning. Are y'all with me this morning? Amen? <laughs> so y'all going to make me work this morning. But here in our world, we know it's, it's not just about who you know or, 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 or what you know. It's who you know. Earlier in chapter 1, we read God saying, The ox knows his owner and the donkeys its master's feeding trough, but Israel does not know me. One way of knowing God is by practicing the presence of God. Jesus is always present, but we don't always act like he is. Sometimes it's good to just ask yourself the question, what would I do if Jesus walked into this room? What would I say? How would I pray then? Right now I struggle to pray, but if he walked into this room, how would I pray? How would I worship? Truth about him matters, but life with him matters even more. We must know God intimately in our prayer life. We must know God through his word. We must be reminded of his goodness constantly if we are going to be a people who lead others to him. We must know him. After standing in the presence of God, and being engulfed by his glory and his holiness, Isaiah says in verse 5, Woe is me. I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of armies. To be an effective missionary in our world, and we're all on God's mission if we are believers, then we must know ourselves. We must know ourselves. To be an effective missionary and to be on mission for the Lord and to continue to bring people to him and to witness his love for them through the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ, we must know ourselves. I find it interesting that Isaiah didn't say, woe is me because I live with people who can't watch their mouths. He didn't just blame the people at his job for always being nasty to him, and that's what causes him to be nasty. He didn't just say, man, <laughs> 
if you had my family, you, you would know. But instead, Isaiah takes full ownership and he says, woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah knows himself. He takes seriously in this moment who he is. And he knows that man, if God were to give me what I deserve, I am through. He says, I am ruined. But in order to know ourselves, it takes humility, right? It takes humility to step outside of yourself and to look at who you are objectively. To say this is true and uh, this is how I ought to be, but this is who I am currently. I know my daughter, Chloe, I know y'all probably say, man, I'm tired of you talking about your kids. <laughs> I'm always going to talk about my kids. Um, that's just the, the life I'm in right now. But my daughter, Chloe, she's usually mesmerized by what she see in the mirror. Three years old. I usually help them get ready in the morning. I don't, you know, really put on their clothes. That's sort of their mom's specialty. But I sort of help them wash up, you know. And so we're in the, uh, in the bathroom in the mornings, and Chloe is standing there, and she's looking in the mirror, and I help her brush her teeth. Okay, come on, you do it like this. And then all of a sudden, I say, all right, now I'm going to stand back, and you can go ahead, and you can wash your face. And Chloe stands there. She takes the water, she gets it in her hand, and she just looking in the mirror, the whole time looking in the mirror. And then she takes the water and she says, floop. Now wait, wait, floop. All over the countertop, all on the floors. She's just throwing water, throwing water, trying to hit her face. But she is so mesmerized. She's so into just, the, just, just what's happening in the mirror. But internally, Oftentimes, we can't stand to look at ourselves long enough to make any lasting change. Sometimes we look internally and see things that we don't like. We know that, man, I'm a, maybe I should be a little more patient. Maybe, I, I, I wish I wasn't so judgmental to judge others. But oftentimes we, 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 we quickly turn and overlook and oh let me get out of the way of that. When it comes to being aware of our own sinful tendencies we are quick to take our eyes off. We are too mesmerized by what we look at and call good. And we minimize our sin. And we wonder sometimes, man, why am I always sort of in these same sin cycles? I, can't, I just can't get out of this one. Man, this one just, it just always gets me. Always beaten by the same situations over and over again. There's a quote from Frederica Matthews Green. She says, self-reflection and change 
are indispensable if there's going to be any growth. In other words, we must see God and see ourselves correctly and make the necessary changes to promote growth. We hope you're inspired by God's word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's word. Isaiah 6, verse 6 through 7, we read, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. If we are going to partner with God and if we're going to bring others to him, we must be people who are willing and who are obedient in the area of growth. We must grow. There are several ways in the scriptures in which the Christian ought to grow. We are to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to grow in the gospel and what it means that God is holy and he's pure and there's no wickedness in him and we are to grow in our understanding and awareness of our sinful tendencies. We are to grow in all of these things, grow more and more dependent on Jesus for our righteousness. But there's another way in which we are to grow. We are to grow closer to God through judgment. Your pain is an invitation to a promotion of growth. There's a theme, again, in Isaiah of judgment and hope. Judgment is certain. God will bring justice to the earth. Sometimes we get fatigued. Sometimes we get tired and exhausted of seeing all of the wickedness. Justice will happen. Judgment is certain. It will be corrected. God had made it known to Israel that he will take revenge against all of its evil. Israel will be beaten and driven out of its land into exile. The nations that Israel trusted, those same nations that they said, hey, look, we, we're going to look for them and we're going to trust in their security for us. Those same nations will beat and destroy Israel. God would allow it. But what is the purpose of this judgment? Why do we have to go through this? It's not destruction. But it's purging. Hope for Israel is not found in the avoidance of judgment, but in judgment. According to Isaiah 4.4, God will cleanse the blood guilt from the heart of Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment 
and a spirit of burning. Verse 7 here says, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. Do you see what's happening here? Isaiah experienced the fiery but ultimately gracious cleansing of God. This was supposed to, this hot coal was supposed to burn the flesh off his lips. But instead it brought him healing. The pattern that God has given us is that he draws us into him. He cleans us up and sometimes that is painful. Sometimes we don't want to. Sometimes it hurts. But the pattern is as he cleans us, washes us, he then sends us out to reach others that they may be cleaned and washed. And if that cycle continues and were to continue, we should desire it because that is what brings the world Us being involved in calling others to fall in love with God and God cleansing us and them from the inside out. But the problem is found in Isaiah 5.18. Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords and deceit and pull sin along with cart ropes. God wants to make you clean. But the problem is, we like to hold on to our sin. We like to hold on to the brokenness that God wants to repair. God didn't just send Isaiah, he cleaned him first. The Spirit of God wants to make us clean. We are to grow more and more in love with him as we go through the trials we face in life. Hardships are intended for your good. Sometimes we face difficulties in life. Burdens get heavy. Life gets hard. Financial strains. Relational tension. They don't like me. I don't like them. All of this sort of beats down on us. And in those moments, sin is crouching in a tall grass and it takes advantage of its opportunity to lure us towards bitterness. They did that? They said that to you? How about one over here? Lures us to bitterness and resentment. But God has placed these trials in our lives to cultivate patience, to strengthen love, And long-suffering, the trials that we face as Christians are training grounds that help us grow. Through purging, our trust becomes purified. Our affliction has a refining effect on us. God intends for your suffering to produce growth. God sees the uncleanness of Isaiah, and he doesn't destroy him or throw him away. He doesn't say, no, 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 you, you, you nasty. Get away from me. Instead, he cleaned Isaiah, and he called him. Let's take a look at verses 7 through 8. 
He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord asking, Who should I send? Who will go for us? That's the Trinity right there. Who will go for us? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Who should I send? And Isaiah said, Here I am. Send me. Send me. I find it interesting that Isaiah doesn't know anything about the mission. Nothing. Don't know nothing about it. But he says, send me. No excuses. He don't know who's going with him. He don't know uh, uh, what's going to happen when I get there. He don't know where, when. He doesn't even ask how. How can sometimes be a faithless question when we wonder, I mean, how am I going to do that? No, in this moment, Isaiah, without knowing anything, chose to trust God. And he said, send me. And God replied in verse 9, go and say to these people, If we are going to be a part of the changing that's going to happen, the Spirit of God is making this thing new, y'all. If we are going to be a part of that, we must go. If we are going to play our part in restoring the world, Isaiah wasn't just willing to go. Yeah, I mean, I do it. I mean, I'm willing to. But he In chapter 1, verse 19, it says, God said, if you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. Some of us are just willing. Yeah, I do it. Somebody asked me. God said, you must be willing and obedient. Isaiah knew that going is not an option to consider. Go is a command to obey. Isaiah had a unique call and a unique mission. Isaiah's mission, the prophet, is essentially being asked by God to allow the people to continue along the same path of disobedience that they have been on. God orders Isaiah to make sure the people do not repent and thus avoid judgment. At this point in Israel's history, God is in the bathing business. He's going to wash Israel clean of its filthiness and its idolatry and its wickedness. God is calling the prophet to play a part in holding Israel still. Isaiah, I'm going to go ahead on and bathe Israel. I want you to just tell her, stay still. Stay stay right there. Stay still. And through the waters of judgment, God is saying, I'm going to wash her. Now, what about us? God has us, the church, his church, on a mission. 
God called the church and he has washed us. And through the waters of baptism, we are clean. We are made holy through the work of Jesus Christ. And now he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is the ministry of reaching others and reconciling them to God. Question for you this morning. How are you doing in your going? How are you doing in your going? Somebody in this room today, you know God has called you. You know, you know it. You've had dreams. You've had visions. Sometimes you're just in the shower and thoughts come to your mind of how you could draw others closer to God. He has even given some of you skills and gifts that people in your circles do not have. He's equipped you for the mission to share the gospel and to reach those who do not know his love. Sometimes we just keep pushing it off. Things come up. We have to move. Now I got to switch jobs. Now I got to do this. Now I'm going through this. God is shaping you. He has been shaping you and purging you and strengthening your faith. And now he's calling you to go. Lastly, we'll close with Isaiah 9 through 12. Verse 9. God replied, go. Say to these people, keep listening but do not understand. Keep looking but do not perceive. Make the minds of these people dull. Deafen their ears and blind their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their ears and hear with their ears understand with their minds turn their back and be healed then I said until when Lord and he replied until cities lie ruined without inhabitants houses are without people the land is ruined and desolate watch this and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. The Lord is going to allow nations to take hold of Israel and almost destroy her, cleaning her up of this wickedness. And in its destruction, in its judgment, there is hope. Verse 13, though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the turban or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. Maybe you feel like Israel, beaten down by life. I want you to know that Jesus is in the stump. Jesus is in the stump. The same Jesus who sat 
on the throne, as we've seen earlier, and he's being worshipped by thousands of angels. The same God who is powerful and almighty is the same God who is in the stump, and he's the hope of Israel, and he lays in us by his spirit. He leads us into the world to bring others closer to him. Listen to the hope of Israel in Isaiah 11. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and understanding. A spirit of counsel and strength. A spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. On that day the Lord will extend his hand a second time. To recover the remnant of his people. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people. Who will survive Assyria. And there was for Israel. As there was for Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Through the waters of judgment. Through the waters of our pain. God will divide the waters and he will make a way. His people will see the promised land. No matter how ugly and how wicked things look today, God will make this earth a place of blessing and peace. Now, what could we do with this? What would happen if the church took this seriously? What would happen to our community if we embrace this hope? If we embrace the fact that God is making this thing new, that God is doing a work in us and through us. What would happen to this neighborhood? We will someday be a new city, a city of peace, a city of paradise. As God is on the mission of making all things new, will you join him? Will you trust him? Will you say like Isaiah, here I am, Lord. Send me. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.